This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Today, actor Carrie Russell. She stars in the new Netflix political drama, The Diplomat, as a foreign service officer tapped to become the American ambassador to the UK. Russell also starred in the series Felicity and The Americans. Her career started at 15, when on a whim she went to a casting call for the all-new Mickey Mouse Club. You know, you get in finally and he says, you know, what do you have prepared? Can you read this little script about a mermaid trying to recycle (laughs) or something (laughs) like that? She booked the gig. Also, we'll talk with best-selling nonfiction author David Grann about his new book, The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. And Maureen Corrigan will review a book investigating an IRA attempt to assassinate Margaret Thatcher. That's all coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. In this country... Some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Our first guest, Carrie Russell, is in the new Netflix political drama The Diplomat. The show's creator was a writer on Homeland and the West Wing. In The Diplomat, Carrie Russell stars as Kate Weiler, a career foreign service officer with an excellent reputation for handling international crises, often behind the scenes. Her husband, Hal, played by Rufus Sewell, is also a diplomat and former ambassador whose heroic and sometimes rash behavior has been praised in certain halls of Washington and cursed in others. Kate is preparing to go to Afghanistan when an attack on a British aircraft off the coast of Iran derails those plans. The White House calls her into the Oval Office. Here's Russell as Kate Weiler speaking to the president, played by Michael McKeon, and his chief of staff, Billy, played by Nana Mensa. We don't have anyone in London right now. Mm -hmm. A bad time not to have anyone in London. 25 of their sailors get killed because Iran wants to send me a message. We don't know it was Iran. Whoever it was, we need someone substantial to be the ambassador in London. He'll be great. He's a great choice. I'm sorry. Hal, and you didn't have to ask me. We've worked in different countries before. We're not talking about Hal. You're experienced. You'd signal we're taking this extremely seriously. You'd be at every funeral, every memorial. Sorry, I'm going to Kabul. We'll take care of that. They'll love Hal in London. He's good at all that. It's not going to be Hal. Why not? Because he called the Secretary of State a war criminal. I promised I wouldn't send him anywhere ever again. I realize London has a ceremonial component to it, and you were ready to do more substantive work in Kabul. 
I'm hoping to save a shred of what we spent 2,400 American lives building. It feels substantive. Billy. I'm just saying it's hard to imagine. She can't imagine it. The president is asking you to serve as ambassador to the United Kingdom. We have a plane waiting. We'd like you to get on it. It is an honor and a privilege. That's more like it. Carrie Russell has played two iconic roles in television, as the lead on the show Felicity, as a young college woman in New York, and Elizabeth Jennings, a Soviet spy in the 80s, living undercover in the United States in the critically acclaimed show The Americans. She received three Emmy nominations for that role. She got her start on television as a teenager on the all-new Mickey Mouse Club, with a cast that also included Britney Spears, Ryan Gosling, Christina Aguilera, and Justin Timberlake. Russell also starred in the 2007 movie Waitress, has appeared in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Mission Impossible 3, and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Her most recent movie is the comedy horror film Cocaine Bear. Carrie Russell, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, I just wanted to ask you first how you were pitched the show The Diplomat and the character Kate Weiler. Deborah Kahn who wrote it, sent me the script. It came through the the normal channels. It was actually, it was the holidays. It was Christmas time. And it just so happened that I had uh, three sets of grandparents downstairs in my house. <laughs> yeah. and I was cooking for them all. It was chaotic and fun and amazing. And, um, you know, I was clearly not shopping around for a new television show to join. Um, right. I read this and I just, it has this combination of this political fun intrigue and almost in the world of kind of war journalism and, and those kind of stories that, that interest me and this world of civil servants and um, the State Department and the people who do those jobs that, you know, we just don't know that much about and Deborah, she writes about the minutia of life, you know. So it's someone going to meet the president, but then realizing there's yogurt uh, on my pants. And you're like, I got to get this yogurt. Like, how am I going to get this off? You know, and um, it's just great writing. And I, I couldn't say no. So the show's creators called your character Itchy. What does that mean to you? <laughs> That's very funny. Um, She's a very good organizer, and she's very good at um, getting all the facts right and getting people where they need to be um, behind the scenes. And then I think if you ask her to wear something other than her one black suit that she really feels good in and smart in and tough in, and you ask her to wear a dress, it's going to show her sweat, and she's itchy, and um, she doesn't like when people look at her. So that's really fun. Yeah, she's much more comfortable behind the scenes, right? That's what this show is sort of about, you know, plucking her from the background as like number two and bringing her to the front in a very visible post, which um, London would be for an ambassador. Um, so as you, as you said earlier, the job of the American ambassador to the UK has a lot of ceremonial aspects to it and and you know, you said that the job is uh, often a reward to like a big political donor or bundler. And like 
Kate's supposed to attend all these parties and teas. She's supposed to wear dresses and do photo shoots. And she she really bristles against that. Like, she just wants to do the diplomacy. And I was just wondering if that's something that you relate to as an actor. Like, do you enjoy movie openings and galas, or would you just prefer to do the work? Going to an award show is such a fun idea. (laughs) (laughs) Going is zero fun. It's so fun to think about wearing a fancy dress. It is so fun. Everything is so pretty. Oh my gosh. And the colors and getting your hair and makeup done and, and, and imagining that you'll look so much better than you really do when you do school <laughs> drop off. But the truth and the reality of getting your hair and makeup done, it, you still look sort of weird. You're, you're instantly starting to sweat um, putting on a dress, going, oh, this doesn't look the way I thought it would. Oh, wow, standing in front of hundreds of photographers while they take your picture and you're like, oh, my God, I'm doing the wrong face. I'm not standing right. Oh, they're, they're going to see my sweat. Can they see through this dress? Can they see my nipples? <laughs> like what, you know, it's all, that is never fun. <laughs> like all you want to do is do like five minutes of one of those things and then go leave and get a burger and have a beer. But that's not what you get to do. It's like an eight-hour ordeal. So, yes, I fully, um, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I mean, just you're just in a tailspin of uncomfort. <laughs> right. Well, let's just take a short break here. Um, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with actor Carrie Russell. She's starring in the new Netflix series The Diplomat. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break. This is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to my interview with Carrie Russell. She stars in the new political drama The Diplomat, which is streaming on Netflix. Um, let's talk about your last TV show, The Americans. The, the, the show ran for six seasons on FX. It ended in 2018. It was critically acclaimed. The show won two Peabody's, and you were highly praised for your performance, and you were nominated for three Emmys. So for people who don't know the show, uh, I guess there are some people out there. The show takes place in the 80s during the Reagan administration, and you play Elizabeth Jennings, a Soviet spy posing as an American. You're in a KGB-arranged marriage to another spy played by Matthew Reese. And when the show starts, you've been living in the United States for 15 years, You have two American-born kids, which was initially just like part of your disguise. And you've thought of your relationship to your husband as more of a work relationship rather than a romantic one. Although at this point, you're starting to have 
real feelings for him. So could you just tell us how this role came to you? Uh, you know, it's funny. John Landgraf, who runs FX, really advocated for me to do this part. And I kept, I read it and I was like, why in the world would, would they want me to play this cold, calculating spy, Russian spy? Because literally when I was reading it, I was thinking of like, um, you know, in, that, in, in Rocky, like when, they, when he has to fight the Russian fighter and he has that amazing Russian wife. Mm-hmm. I think it's Bridget yeah, Nielsen yeah, or something, is. right? Am no, I making that great. up? That's, that's who I was picturing. <laughs> yeah. I, I am l- frazzled and nervous and like girl next door. So I was like, what? Why does he want me? But that was sort of the genius of him is realizing that you need somebody who does look sort of ordinary and that people have this sort of whatever feeling for so that I could be this crazy killer and, you know, sneaky spy. Well, I'd like to play a scene from the show. Uh, this is from season three. So y- your daughter, Paige, is, is a teenager at this point, and she's getting a little older. And your handlers, the KGB, want to recruit her for the cause. And Philip is strongly against this. Like, he wants Paige to have a normal American life. Your character, Elizabeth, is more resigned to the idea. And this is a real rift in the marriage at this point. Um But Paige has been suspicious of your behavior for a while, and in this scene, she confronts you both, and you decide to tell her the truth. And Paige here is played by Holly Taylor. Paige, your father and I, we, we were born in a different country. What? Where? The Soviet Union. We came here before you were born. I I don't understand. We're here to help our people. Most of what you hear about the Soviet Union isn't true. Everything that we've told you about being activists, about wanting to make the world a better place. So, you're... We work for our country. Getting information. Information that they couldn't get in other ways. You're... spies? We serve our country. But we also serve the cause of peace around the world. We fight for people who can't fight for themselves. Stop. Paige. We wanted to tell you this for such a long time. But you didn't. No. No, you're right. We didn't. So that's a scene from the Americans. Like, that's a (laughs) real turning point in the show. Um... And it, it's ironic, you know, you finally telling your daughter the truth about their lives, like just lays bare all the dishonesty that they've been living with and like that their yeah. the family is like a, based on a foundation of lies. It's, um, you know, Joe and Joel, the writers of the show, um, they at one point had, had spoken to 
like a, a, a psychologist about children and how this might affect them. And one of the things I thought was so interesting was they were saying one of the things that traumatizes a child more than anything is a huge lie because they can't even trust their own memories because they, they go back and they're like, but that none of that was real because you weren't doing that. So I have all these memories that you were working in a travel agency or whatever we were doing. And, you know, that's not even real anymore and how damaging that is. Well, it's interesting because like parents, like whether they're Soviet spies or not, like they can <laughs> they conceal things from your kids like all the time, like for all sorts of reasons, like to maintain their innocence, like to simplify things and just to keep the parents' lives private. And, you know, that even continues – and as the as the kids age, one of the things I found really fascinating with your relationship with Paige is that, like, even when Elizabeth reveals that she's a spy, like, she still can't tell Paige about all the stuff she does, like all the <laughs> the honey traps and the murders, yeah, like, because yeah. she she doesn't want Paige to think she's a monster. No, I know it's it's such a great idea for a show because you have these people, these children looking up to you and they're judging you. And it's such an interesting, it's not just, you know, one spy telling the story in a movie. You're you're living with them and you're living with their choices and feeling all these other little satellite parts of their lives. And um, that's what's so fun about this era of TV that who knows, maybe we're moving out of now. Yeah, as you said, like she's not a sympathetic character. She's like a cold-hearted killer. She's she's not a terribly warm mother. She's like literally a, an enemy of the country. And you know, like Matthew Reese's character Philip is 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 sort of easier to like. Like he he's thinking of defecting to the U.S. He's a little more of a conventional parent to the kids. But you know, watching the show, like the audience is definitely rooting for Elizabeth. Can you talk about how you humanized the role? The main thing is that Elizabeth was doing what she was supposed to do, and she wanted to do it well. Like, that is what she believed in. And from her perspective, she's the better soldier. It right. was, in a way, Philip. He's the slacker. <laughs> that character. He, he was, yeah, he was the one putting them in danger with his side, you know, dalliances and um, kind of over-emotion you know, about everything that you could, one could argue was putting the children in danger because they could have been caught. But hmm, how did I humanize her? I just believed what she believed. She was doing what she was supposed to do and she was doing it well. So, you know, putting all the spy stuff aside, like the, the show's really about like a marriage and a family and like about the trust between partners, like how how people change during a marriage and how that the, like either the relationship adapts or the it breaks apart. Absolutely. I mean, that to me was the show. I mean, yes, I know the, the political intrigue of it all and the historic aspect of it, but to me, it was just this impossible, painful marriage and trying to stick it out or not. And 
that's every marriage or any relationship, long-term relationship. It's, they're so hard. I mean, there might be a couple people who it's easy and great, but um, it's hard. And I thought that is, was truly what the show was so great at. You know, the conceit that we were working and living in this spy world allowed the story to literally for the job, he had to sleep with someone else or multiple people. (laughs) You know what I mean? So you got to play out those real fears and feelings of long-term relationships um, in that way. And it was just, it was such a smart idea to explore and unravel a relationship. During the filming of The Americans, you became like a real-life romantic partner with Matthew Rees and you have a child together. And I'm sure there's a lot of advantages of acting opposite someone who you're in a relationship with. Like you, you probably have a lot of trust for each other. But like are there any disadvantages? A, a, a thousand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me put it this way. It's either amazingly helpful or it's incredibly, impossibly unhelpful. <laughs> um, you know, like anyone, there are certain days when something bad has happened or you haven't been able to finish a fight where you know someone has really done something not cool and you have to get it out and then you have to go shoot this scene where you are just like, you know, um, or... You know, we all have these different personas we have at work for whatever reason, for protection, for ease, for whatever. And your partner is watching you walk through every moment of your day. And it is, it's it's interesting. Um, You know, luckily we, for the most part, get along. And, um, you know, we got to fall in love on this show, like doing these ridiculous spy things. And it was sexy and fun. And, um, but... Yes, it's it can be problematic too. I, I remember Matthew directed a few episodes as well, and in one episode I was really pregnant, and um, <laughs> he was trying to get me to do something. I don't even know what it was, but I had a huge monologue. I think I was just poor Holly Taylor, just yelling at Holly Taylor, our sweet little teenager, just this massive monologue of vitriol towards her, and he came <laughs> up to give me something, some note. And I was just like, stop, stop, no, I'm doing what I can do, just back away. He's like, got it, got it, backing away. (laughs) There's a scene I want to ask you about, and I'd I'd play it for people to listen to, but there's no dialogue in it. So so this is in season three, and earlier in the season, you had a run-in with the FBI in the street, and you beat them up and got away, (laughs) but you... You sustain like a bad jaw injury and you can't get treatment because the feds have put out like an APB on a woman matching your description. Like if anyone looks like you goes to a dentist or a hospital, like let them know. So at this point in the season, like your tooth is one of your teeth has become oh. like really infected and it's causing you a lot of pain. So in the scene, as I said, which is like mostly silent, you get your yeah. husband, Philip to pull the tooth out with a pair of pliers. Uh, you take a shot of whiskey and then you <laughs> lean back in your chair and he just sticks the pliers into your mouth and starts pulling. Like it's it's super intense. It's super gripping. Acting's terrific. So can you tell us about filming that scene? T- totally. That um, scene, 
There's an incredible director, one of my most favorite, Thomas Schlamy. We call him Tommy Schlamy, um, of West Wing fame. And he's just such a master at story. And he kind of came in and he, what he said to us was, this is, you know, a love, this is a sex scene. This is like a love sex scene. And I'm going to play it super tight on your faces. And it's all about trust and knowing every little wince or inch or movement and how much someone can take and how much they can't and like the push-pull of all of that. And that's why that scene is is great because of Tommy. Um, well, and, and you guys, I mean, let's give you credit. Like, <laughs> but, you know, to get to have the open expanse and time to just play that silent like that for that long was such a gift. So just technically, like, first of all, did you take a shot of whiskey, an actual shot of whiskey before that scene or in that scene? Like, were those, <laughs> were those real pliers he was sticking in your mouth? And, like, w- like what was he – was he grabbing on something? Like, I, I didn't take a shot of whiskey, although I, I will be honest. There were quite a few um, random Tuesday mornings, like 7 a.m., at some, you know, like crazy Staten Island hotel room where you're like, hi, nice to meet you. Take off all your clothes, do a sex scene. I definitely (laughs) said to our sweet little PA, I need a beer in my hand in like 30 seconds or this is not going to happen. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure. I was like, nice to meet you. Oh, great, great. So I'm just going to climb on top. Yeah, it's okay to put your hands there. Mm -hmm. I do remember the pliers. I remember them saying, we want them to look like not overly clean. Like we want, so they they did clean them. You know what I mean? But yeah. they got some kind of rough and tumble looking ones. And then he he must have been grabbing onto something in my mouth. Yeah, because it looks like he's straining. I mean, he might be yes. just a really great actor, but it looks like he's he is putting a really some great mus- actor. muscle into that. But yeah, and he was kind of like, he had, he was like using my shoulder for leverage or something. I mean, it was so crazy. Well, Carrie Russell, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for coming to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. Carrie Russell stars in the new Netflix series, The Diplomat. In a new book called There Will Be Fire, Irish journalist Rory Carroll investigates the IRA plot to assassinate Margaret Thatcher, a plot that almost succeeded and thus almost changed the course of history. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a review. What if... That's the classic alternate history question that drives There Will Be Fire, an engrossing work of nonfiction by journalist Rory Carroll, who is the Ireland correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. What if, Carroll asks, Thatcher's movements had been different during two crucial minutes in the small hours of October 12, 1984? What if she had lingered in the bathroom of her suite, which was several floors directly under a bomb the IRA had planted in the Grand Hotel in Brighton, England? What if that bomb, which did indeed explode and kill and grievously wound dozens of people, had claimed Thatcher among its fatalities— Clearly, the publication of There Will Be Fire has been timed to coincide with the 25th anniversary this month of the Good Friday Agreement, which brought peace, however uneasy, to Northern Ireland. Carroll says that if Thatcher had been killed by the IRA, 
that peace accord might very well not have happened. If comparisons to a political thriller like Frederick Forsyth's The Day of the Jackal are inevitable, so too is a comparison to Patrick Radden Keefe's spectacular 2019 book, Say Nothing, about the IRA abduction and disappearance of a mother of 10 in 1972. Both writers focus on discrete acts of violence as an entryway into a more expansive account of The Troubles, Northern Ireland's bloody struggle for self-determination. Keefe is a flat-out master storyteller. His book's title, Say Nothing, is from a poem by Seamus Heaney, and Keefe's own investigative writing has a rare poetical resonance to it. Carol's writing style is more methodical, diligently layering detail upon detail, much in the manner of one of the Scotland Yard investigators he profiles here, a fingerprint expert named David Tad. In the era before DNA testing, Tad and his team routinely sifted through bomb blasts and other crime scenes for up to 15 hours at a time trying, as Carol says, to match a smudge of a thumb to a name in Scotland Yard's vast archive of terrorist suspect files. Tad and his team pretty much did just that, cracking the identity of Thatcher's would-be assassin, all without the aid of computers. The centerpiece tale here of Thatcher's near assassination needs little embellishment to be riveting. In the wake of its successful assassination of Lord Mountbatten in 1979 and subsequent bombings, like that of Harrods Department Store in 1983, which brought the war to England, the IRA resolved to assassinate the sitting Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, in their eyes the most reviled British leader since Cromwell. The occasion would be the Conservative Party Congress, scheduled for October 1984 at the Seaside Resort of Brighton, where Thatcher and her cabinet would be staying at the Grand Hotel, an imposing Victorian structure. Nearly a month earlier, Patrick McGee, an IRA bomb expert nicknamed the Chancer, in recognition of the risks he took, checked in and spent three days in room 629 building a bomb. He hid it in a detachable panel under the bathtub and set the timer to go off in 24 days, 6 hours, and 36 minutes. The explosion itself was just the spark, Carol writes. The real weapon would be the hotel itself, its bricks, stone, marble, and glass unloosened from 120 years of compact solidity and turned into a great sweeping avalanche. When the bomb went off, one of the hotel's rooftop chimneys, acting like a monstrous guillotine as it sliced its way through to the ground floor, veered sideways. That meant it shattered not Thatcher's bedroom, but her bathroom suite, which the night owl prime minister had left just two minutes earlier. The next morning, amidst the carnage, the Iron Lady gave her conference speech as planned. As Carol comments, even those in Britain who loathed her 
were awed. In his copious acknowledgments, Carroll cites interviews with retired police officers, soldiers, politicians, and former IRA members, including Patrick McGee, whom he says was guarded but gracious. McGee's capture, which is another breathless story here, resulted in a sentence of eight life terms. He served 14 years before he was released under conditions of the Good Friday Agreement, the very same agreement Thatcher's assassination might have imperiled. Carroll, in his understated manner, lets that irony of history speak for itself. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed There Will Be Fire by Rory Carroll. Coming up, we'll hear from New Yorker writer and best-selling author David Gran. His latest nonfiction book is a true tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. At the bottom of the world, below the tip of South America, the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans converge to form one of the most dangerous places to find yourself in a boat, the Drake Passage. In the mid-18th century, a squadron of British warships made the journey through the passage in the worst weather imaginable, suffering terrible damage to their ships. One man of war called the Wager went missing and wrecked upon the rocks of a desolate island off Patagonia. At first, the castaways maintained the naval laws and discipline of the British Empire under their captain, but that unraveled under the hardships they endured, including poor shelter, punishing weather, and starvation. There was murder and cannibalism, and the captain lost the respect of his crew, especially after killing one of his sailors by shooting him. Eventually, the majority of the men mutinied and sailed away on a makeshift craft, leaving behind their captain and a small band loyal to him. They sailed nearly 3,000 miles to rescue in Brazil, but only 29 of the 81 survived the journey. Miraculously, the captain survived as well. 
The leaders of the mutineers and the captain were reunited in England at a court-martial hearing to decide whether they were guilty of the crimes of mutiny and murder, punishable by death. New Yorker magazine staff writer David Grant writes about this harrowing journey and the court-martial in his new book, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. Grant's earlier books include The Lost City of Z and Killers of the Flower Moon. Both have been made into movies. Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Martin Scorsese, will hit screens later this year. And Scorsese already has plans to adapt The Wager. Well, David Grant, welcome back to Fresh Air. Oh, it's so great to be back on the program. So your book takes place in the 1740s when the British Empire went to war against its rival, Imperial Spain. And the war was called the War of Jenkins' Ear, and we can leave that to readers to find out why I had that name. But uh, there was a secret mission that a squadron of five British warships took. Tell us about that mission and where they were going. Yeah, so uh, they were given a secret mission uh, to try to intercept and capture a Spanish galleon filled with so much treasure, it was known as the prize of all the oceans. And so they were going to sail across the Atlantic, around the violent seas of Cape Horn, into the Pacific, and then try to intercept uh, the ship somewhere off the coast of the Philippines. Believe it or not, uh, that was part of the mission, and there was a real whiff of piracy to it all. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a heist movie, but like, isn't this isn't this piracy? Isn't this almost illegal during that time? It wasn't illegal. It was actually part, you know, it was the end of a certain era of buccaneering. Um, but in that period, um, seamen were offered a tantalizing prospect, which was a share of the prize money. So, yes, it there really was a piratical element to this uh, secret mission. And can you set this conflict in the larger context? Like, what were Britain and Spain fighting about? Yeah, so um, Great Britain was seeking. This was the this was the kind of um, terrible age of empires, and Great Britain was seeking to expand its empire into Latin America and break its rival Spain's hold over that region. And so this war was sparked by um, by imperialists uh, who were hoping to um, break that Spanish hold over this region. And as, as I said in the introduction, even today, rounding Cape Horn is considered very dangerous. What makes it so tricky? Oh, it is it is the worst. It is among the worst, if not the worst, seas in the world. And the reason is that the seas travel uninterrupted, unblocked by any land around the globe. And so they travel about 13,000 miles um, without having anything to slow them down. And then they funnel around Cape Horn. A 90-foot wave can dwarf a ship's mast. The currents are the strongest on Earth. And then there are the winds, which can accelerate to as much as 200 miles per hour. Herman Melville, who later made the trek around the horn, compared it to a descent into hell in Dante's Inferno. And you say, like, they're, they're facing these waves, which they have to ascend and descend, and then, like, in the hollows of the waves are these deadly icebergs. 
yes, they have to navigate through uh, a typhoon or what they refer to as the perfect hurricane. There are tidal waves. Um, and, you know, these ships, which were the engineering marvels of their day, because they were very sophisticated in so many ways, they were these murderous instruments, but also the homes to hundreds of sailors who lived together. But they were also very vulnerable because they were made of very perishable materials, uh, virtually all of wood. We'll get to that in a second. But one of the things I found fascinating was that this is before the Panama Canal, obviously, but the Spanish would prefer to just cross Panama rather than sail around the Cape. That is how terrifying Cape Horn was to seamen, that the Spanish decided that for their trade, they would take their cargo ship, sail to Panama, and then haul the goods across the jungle, (laughs) suffering malaria and uh, yellow fever, and then load the goods on the other side of Panama uh, onto uh, ships into the Pacific. Um, So that was just a testament to how terrifying these seas really were. Let's talk a little bit about these ships. You call them buoyant wooden castles. Uh, The flagship of this mission was the Centurion. Can you describe it for us? Yeah. So again, yeah, these ships really were these kind of engineering marvels. They had, uh, they were more than 120 feet long. They had three masts. They were propelled by sails. They could fly as many as, um, you know, 12 to 18 sails, depending on the size of the warship at a time. Um, But again, they were also um, very susceptible to the elements of sea and storm because they were made of wood. One of the facts that astonished me when researching this book was that um, about 4,000 trees um, could be used to build one of these warships. And even I even found accounts of people complaining about a kind of deforestation at the Mm. time. Yeah, it's amazing to me. Like these boats are built to be as sturdy as possible. But as you say, they constantly need repairs because of the sea and storm damage they face. But there's also these insects and fungus that's destroying their their structural integrity. And there are, yes, there are worms that burrow holes in them. There are termites. Then there are the rats which gnaw through food and sails. Um, If a ship is not remade after every long voyage, it can just sink. And so even as sophisticated as these ships were, a a shipwright at the time estimated their lifespan was only about a dozen years. And that is assuming they are being almost virtually remade, the hulls and the the planks uh, after every long voyage. Yeah. Now, now the wager, the the ship that you focus on, was was not built as a man of war. It was actually a merchant ship that was purchased by the Navy and refurbished for battle. You say it was tubby and unwieldy. Yeah, it was a little bit like the ugly duckling of the squadron (laughs) because it had not been born for battle. It had been one of these merchant ships that had been remade um, into a warship uh, to serve in the war. It was um, the lowest uh, rated ship. In that that period, they rated warships by the number of cannons and the wager at 28. So it was a six rate, which was the lowest rate. And it had been named after the head of the Admiralty at the time, a man named Sir Charles Wager. And the name in many ways seemed fitting because they were all, um, in effect, gambling with their lives. So these boats also needed a lot of sailors to work properly. You say that the Centurion, the the flagship of this mission, needed 400 sailors. And that's only one of the ships going on the mission. There are four other warships. There's a scouting boat and two cargo ships. They all needed personnel, but the Navy was having a hard time recruiting enough men. What means did they resort to to find the manpower? Yeah, so uh, Great Britain at that time did not have conscription. 
and it had exhausted its supply of volunteers uh, during this war for the Navy. And so for the squadron, which was desperately short of men, and men were the most essential element, you needed skilled seamen to operate these very complex vessels. And so what they did was they dispatched the press gangs, and the press gangs would roam into cities, they would roam into ports and towns, and they would look for anyone with the telltale signs of a mariner. You know, if you had even a little tar on the tips of your fingertips, tar was used on a ship a lot, they would say, oh, you're a mariner. They would round you up. They would put you on these basically like these floating jails and take you out to the ship, and you were forced to go unwillingly on a voyage that might last three years. Um, even then, the squadron was short of men, so the Admiralty took the extreme step of rounding up soldiers from a retirement home, many of whom were in their 60s and 70s. They were missing an assortment of limbs. Some were so sick, they needed to be lifted on stretchers onto these Hmm. ships before the voyage. Everybody knew they were sailing to their deaths. Back to the press gangs for a second. You describe how the press gangs would row out to returning merchant ships, and these are ships that may have been out, may have been out in sea for years, and would snatch sailors off those boats so that the sailors wouldn't be able to see their families. They would be put right back onto another boat. And then also you describe how there's this poignant scene where family and wives would go to the docks looking for their loved ones trying to peer into the floating jails to see if they could get one last glimpse um, of the men before they were sent off again. Yeah. I mean, those scenes give you such a poignant sense of the human toll, these expeditions. You know, you could have been a a loved one waiting for somebody to come home, and then you hear they've been snatched. You haven't seen a husband or a brother or a son uh, for years and years. And then you just hope to catch one last glimpse before they sail off. And given how perilous this voyage is, not only may you not, this may be the last glimpse you have of your loved one. Let's talk a little bit about life on board these boats. Although they were huge vessels, there were so many sailors that unless you were, say, like the captain, you didn't have a lot of personal space, right? Yeah, like on land, uh, real estate was a reflection of a class society um, and and hierarchical society. So the captain had a great cabin, a large cabin with a balcony overlooking the sea. Um, But um, the petty officers were in very small quarters, and the seamen had to sleep on hammocks separated only by about a foot. At most, the distance. And, you know, so in jostling seas, their elbows and knees are, 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 are bouncing against each other. And there could be dozens of boys on board, some as young as six years old. What jobs did they have? Yeah. So, I mean, what's so interesting about these ships is that they really are these floating civilizations that are almost like a, a test or experiment in human sociability because people from all walks of lives and all ages are thrown onto these ships. You know, they begin as strangers, most of them. There could be boys as young as six. You could have a men in their 80s. Um, you have aristocrats, you have dandies, you have city paupers, you have professional craftsmen, you have free black seamen. They're each given a different kind of mission on the ship. The boys um, tended to be, they were like powder monkeys. They would, you know, run about carrying the, the you know, the, the gunpowder in battle. Many of them were there to be trained, to learn how to live on a ship um, so that they could grow on to become seamen. Um, And some might even be from well-to-do families who are in training to eventually become officers. 
Yeah, one of those um, is actually John Byron, who later is the grandfather of Lord Byron, the poet. The way you describe it, one of the more dangerous jobs on board was climbing the mainmast. Can you describe how harrowing that is? Yeah, it's it's harrowing. So you mentioned John Byron, for example, this midshipman who was 16 years old when the voyage set sail. Um, and he has to learn, you know, how to work and operate uh, on a ship. And one of the tasks he has to do is to climb these masts that can climb as, you know, that can rise as much as 100 feet. They would have to climb along these ropes uh, that hold up the masts on the exterior and scurry up them. You know, it wasn't like ships today where you could kind of work the seals from down on the deck. You had to go up and then climb up and climb up. Sometimes when you were climbing, your back was nearly parallel uh, to the deck and the sea. Um, right, because the ship is it, moving. This is not a static, uh, no, static pole. The no, ship is, is rocking is, back and forth. No, I mean, and, and it's important to mention that, you know, there will come a time on this voyage where not only are they rocking back and forth, they have to do this in hurricanes and typhoons. So they are swinging as if, you know, they were spiders clinging on um, as the ship rocks, you know, close to 45 degrees to one side and then 45 degrees to the other. <laughs> have to ask you uh, what the toilet situation was like. <laughs> well, everything on a ship had its own name, and the toilet was known as the head. Um, it was basically a hole in the water, um, and it would just kind of shoot through and down into the, into the sea. But in storms, when for the average seaman, when it became so rough, and it would it, when they were going around Cape Horn, the seas were coming over the whole, entire bow of the ship, washing some of the heads away and making it impossible to use them. Mm. It would not be right to call it a privy because there was no privacy. Yes. <laughs> so, um, You'd be a landlubber if you called it a privy. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so uh, there's a sea battle in your book, and we won't give the details of it. But one of the things I was surprised to read was just how close the warships would get to each other before they started firing their cannons. Yes, they they did because the the weaponry, while very lethal, was not very accurate over distances. So they would come side by side, you know, you know, parallel to each other, and they would just unload their cannons, also firing musket shots. They would have men climb the mast to kind of pick people off on the deck. And the other thing that is I wasn't aware of, uh, you know, again until <laughs> until working on this book was that, you know, I always assumed that the 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 cannons were the most lethal part. You know, you get hit by a cannon or you get hit by a musket shot. But the greatest danger during battle was actually splinters because these ships were all made of wood. That if a cannonball hit the ship, it would send this just uh, splinters flying, some as long as two feet, three feet, four feet, and they would spare the men and boys and kill them. When people didn't die immediately, they were sent to the surgeon um, who would set up a table somewhere inside the ship. And obviously there wasn't a lot that could be done, but one of the things they did a lot was amputate limbs. And uh, in your book, you you have a diagram um, from the period that shows how to amputate limbs. First of all, <laughs> I wouldn't know how to amputate a limb from looking at this diagram. But second, <laughs> secondly, the thing that, that just seems like such a lie about it is you have the surgeon. There's a man and he's holding out his arm. There's three men around him like holding him upright. But everyone looks so calm. Like this is like 
here's my arm, like chop it off. Like clearly that was not the situation. Yeah, well, clearly you're in battle. You have to, uh, you know, these these surgeries were done during battle. And in fact, um, midshipman Byron had a very small quarters for the midshipmen. That would be turned into the operating room uh, during battle. And they would lay the men, usually on a couple sea chests put together. They would lay a sail on the on the ground so that the surgeon wouldn't slip on blood. And then a couple men would hold the, the patient down and the surgeon would just saw as quickly as possible with a blade, um, usually trying to do it within a couple minutes at most. And then um, there was no anesthesia. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, there was just no anesthesia. Yeah. So you could just imagine the pain. Well, David Grant, thanks so much for coming back on Fresh Air. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Sam. David Grant's new book is called The Wager, a tale of shipwreck, mutiny, and murder. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Samam, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Color Choice shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.